It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to Kubrick's Universe. So, as you may know, on July 15th of this year, 2018, some big news broke about a previously unknown movie script being discovered. But this wasn't just any script. It was a script penned by Stanley Kubrick and Paths of Glory co-writer Calder Willingham over 62 years ago. And it had only been discovered when one of Stanley's earliest collaborators, the composer Gerald Freed, brought it to the attention of Kubrick fans the world over. The script is called Burning Secret, and it's an adaptation of a 1913 novella by Austrian writer Stefan Zweig, and it tells the story of a young boy who is seduced by a man in order to get to the boy's mother. Thus far, there have been three filmed versions of the original novella, the most recent being in 1988. And that production was written and directed by Andrew Birkin, and it starred Klaus Maria Brandauer, David Eberts, and the legendary Faye Dunaway. But this particular treatment of the screenplay by Kubrick and Willingham was discovered by our friend Nathan Abrams, a professor in film studies at Bangor University, while he was just doing research for his new book about Stanley Kubrick. And we're going to hear from Nathan in just a bit about that. But first, I have to tell you that earlier in 2018, we did have the pleasure of speaking with Stanley Kubrick's longtime right-hand man and good friend, Leon Vitali. Incidentally, just a few days after this amazing news broke. So obviously, we had to ask him for his take on what he knew about this little big nugget of knowledge. One of the things, uh, Leon, that's just come up is fascinating news, uh, which is that apparently in the mid-1950s, Stanley mm-hmm. and his then-producing partner, uh, James Harris, Pre- right. uh, when he presented Paths of Glory to MGM, they had turned down right. their project initially. But uh, then they took this other property to the studio, which was a screenplay that Kubrick had co-written with Calder Willingham based right. on Stefan's wife's novel, uh, novella, The Burning Secret. And the studio also yeah. turned down that project, but the, the script has just resurfaced thanks to Nathan Abrams. And right. the, the reason it's believed at this early stage is because it was likely due to the sexual nature of that story was unlikely to pass the production code in the United Absolutely, States. Yeah. So now that this right. screenplay, you know, which was, you know, unknown until recently, uh, right. has just been discovered, you know, what's your take on it? Do you think uh, there's going to be a bidding war? Do you think, you know, it's going to not get made? What's well, your gut you know, you know some, I mean, what can I say? I mean, the thing is that, you know, I'm not precious about these things. If if somebody, let's say for one of the, just one of the discussion is someone like Paul Thomas Anderson thought, well, I'd like to have a look at that. Mm-hmm. Then of course I'd applaud it. I kind of think, you know, yeah, please go ahead, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, but what one worries about with a, a thing like this is that, you know, which often happens and, you know, I'm going to, say I understand why it's, why it happens you know if it becomes a a piece of salacious you know um material that you know is is there because of just the you know the sexual kind of innuendos and and suggestion behind it you know um because it, even now it would be quite a if you did it properly you know it would be a very contentious Yes. Um, picture, you know, uh, to do it really would probably more now than would have been because I think it would have been very, very hard for him to shoot a film like Alita right now in in this climate. Yeah, you know, I, I really, really do. And then, and, and you know, how and Adrian Lyon, who actually sort of 
went closer to the book, but I didn't mm. think, you know, I hate to say this, Adrian, but I didn't think it was as good as, as Stan. <laughs> you're, you're allowed to say that, Leon. You are yeah. allowed, you are allowed <laughs> to say that. <laughs> but the thing was, you know, he kept such a, Adrian Lyon kept a much closer kind of detail, and it would have been totally impossible for it. For him to, I think, got away with making the film that he made. Now, you know, it really would, really, really would have been. So, I think something like that's always going to be contentious and always going to be. But it needs. That's the reason why it needs the most serious-minded filmmaker, you know, to handle material like that. Yeah, yeah. well said. Very well said. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But you know, I mean, I Stanley had this room. We used to call it. Uh, the the um, uh, Dexian room, which a Dexian is a kind of metal shelving, you know, and it wasn't very big. It was about eight feet by ten feet, but uh, it was a, a locked door, and behind that is where we kept all the stuff that really meant something, you know, more personally to Stanley than anything else, including scripts, you know, that he'd written with uh, other people or, or on his own. Um, and, um, you know, stuff like uh, special kind of uh, anniversary stuff, portraits and, you know, mm-hmm. for his pictures and all, all that kind of uh, ephemera, which, you know, meant something to him personally. Mm. And so it would have been in there, you know, that's where it would have been. And you know, I guess when there was this dispersal going on after Stanley died, you know, who got what, you know, like, uh, you know, the London University or whatever it was, or I think it's an archive in, in, in Wales and what have you, all that stuff would have gone to them, you know, one or other of these people or these organizations. And I suppose it was a part of a part of what they got because it was found in Wales, wasn't it? An archive yeah. in Wales, yeah. I believe. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's where Nathan found it, I believe. I mean, it you know, you know. Did I you ever? Say, did you yeah. ever know anything yeah. about that project in the past? No, 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 no. You, no, you had no idea really. that script was even. Stanley, sitting. Stanley, I tell you something. Stanley never, ever, really, really talked about the past unless it had some kind of effect or, you know, reason why we're talking about this now. You know, yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. I mean, if it came up, it came up, and he wasn't ever shy about telling me things. But if it didn't come up, you know, then, you know, why talk about it? And there was lots of, you know, about, I don't know how many scripts there were that he'd written or been a part of that were in that room, uh, you know, hard to say. I never stood there and counted them. But, um, you know, um, you know, Stan, Stanley was, it just, he could be very, very open, but the openness would happen because you were in conversation and it happened to come up in that way. Right. He didn't, he always said to me, I'm not exactly someone that lives in the past, Leon, you know. So, that right there was Leon's take on what he thought back before we actually knew the full story of where this screenplay came from. Then, a few days ago, we spoke with the actual owner of the script, Gerald Freed, who in turn had passed it on to his son Joshua, who'd revealed to Nathan that yes, it actually existed. We recently had the pleasure of chatting with Gerald Freed, who again composed the music for Stanley's films, and we're going to be bringing you our convos with him really soon. But first, we're very pleased to bring you a little bit of our chat with Mr. Freed, wherein he shared with us just how he came to be the owner of possibly the only copy in existence of Kubrick and Willingham's long-lost screenplay. Um, I just want to... uh ask uh, uh, about the upcoming auction at Bonhams for this recently unearthed screenplay for Burning Secret, uh, quote-unquote discovered by our friend Professor Nathan Abrams. And we'd like to ask you about the upcoming Bonhams auction that you have entered some lots into, including the 1956 Kubrick and Willingham penned script for The Burning Secret. Um, this was a film for our listeners that Stanley and his producing partner at the time, James B. Harris, had tried to get made, but failed to garner studio interest. How did you come into possession of it, Gerald's, and where has it been for the last 60 years? Oh, in one of my closets, uh, <laughs> and I gave it to my son Joshua, who's a Kubrick fan, and he set up the auction, 
and plus letters I have from Kubrick, uh, he asked me uh, to, to, to do the music for it. I said, sure. I was well read enough to have respect for Stefan Zweig. And uh, Kubrick, this was before I knew that Kubrick was going to uh, you know, not use live scores anymore. Mm-hmm. Or I'm not sure of the time sequence. But anyway, I expected to do it. He asked me and gave me a script. That's how I got to be in possession of the script. You know, again, with the mind moving the furniture around, did you always know you were in possession of this? Or was it, as you say, just in a box in your closet? And one day you were like, oh, here's Burning Secret. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was on a shelf until I realized that Kubrick now, uh, people... Uh, are collecting his memorabilia. He's, you know, uh, a major person in our lives and history. So oh, yes. I gave my son Joshua, who's a Kubrick fan, and plus the letters, and he took it from there. Next up is Professor Nathan Abrams, whom we had the privilege of speaking with once again, but this time less than a week before the auction for Burning Secret at Bonhams in NYC took place. And we asked Nathan for his take on the whole story, as well as his thoughts about what may yet happen with this screenplay. So uh, the burning question, if you will, is... How did you come across this script, man? Um, well, uh, Joshua Freed, um, Gerald's son, got got in touch with me to say that um, he had some scripts and one of them was Burning Secret. And uh, my response was, wow, I didn't think there was one. Mm. Um, you know, we didn't we knew he worked on it, but we didn't know no one had seen a script in what, 60 years. So um, my job was to kind of authenticate it. Um, you know, if someone approaches you and say, oh, I got a script that Stanley Kubrick wrote and it's called The Hurdy-Gurdy Man or, or something <laughs> like that, you'd be like, well, you know, I have no evidence he ever wrote that. But, um, you know, everything checks out um, according to what we know. And uh, so, yeah, that, that that's the story. It wasn't discovered in an archive in Wales. Right. <laughs> as much well, as I'd love to be able to say that. Yeah, Sure. Well, nonetheless, you get to uh, take the laurels on this one because I-, I can personally attest to seeing it blow up the Internet in in terms of at least as much as Kubrick News nowadays can do so. It yeah. was covered by everyone. And I- I'm signed up with Google News, you know, to get alerts for uh, anything with his name in it. And uh, for several weeks there, your name was tagged right along in there with uh, Stanley's. I just thought that was really cool to see. So yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, being tagged in the Stanley, I can't complain. Jason, uh, if you if you get pregnant pauses from Nathan, uh, that's just normal. Just imagine you speaking to me. L- listen, if <laughs> listen, if I get pregnant, if I get pregnant, it'll be a, a sign from God. <laughs> yeah, my pauses are very fertile. <laughs> oh my goodness well all right so nathan can you tell our listeners anything about the story that unfolds in the burning secret uh script i mean if you're allowed to and moreover more specifically its relationship to uh the film he made six years later lolita which has similar themes yeah so um what what he's done is taken um the Stefan Zweig story, and um, which is obviously um, set in Austria, you know, written in German, and um, he's translated it. I mean, literally into into English and um, and into an American idiom, um, and he he sets it in the American South in a contemporary story, 1956, um, which is interesting because you know when you think about it. Not all Kubrick's films were set in the period in which they were made. Mm. Um, you know, as as they get later on, they 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 tend not to be right. Mm-hmm. And uh, apart from maybe Eyes Wide Shut, and and so there's there's similarity there. Um, and I'll talk about how I think it influenced his later career. So um, he translates it into an American idiom. He sets it in the South, um, and he fleshes out. I mean, it's a short story, and I think he fleshes it out. Um, so um, the husband of the all right, so the story is there's um, 
a married mother on holiday with her son and um, this bored insurance salesman um, um, spies the mother and decides to seduce her. And because she rebuffs his initial advances, um, he, he goes through the son and uses the son as an unwitting go-between um, to get to the mother. And um, tied up with that is a story of a strangler um, at large. So the son thinks that the, uh, this, this insurance salesman is going to uh, murder his mother. Um, anyway, when he realizes that doesn't happen, he witnesses this kind of act of love between them. I'm not saying they were making love, but, you know, it was clear that they were having more than a friendship. And he rushes home to tell his dad. And the kind of denouement is whether he's going to tell his dad or not or keep this burning secret. I mean, obviously, I think the clue's in the title. Right, what, right. He does. Um, and what's interesting is it kind of sets up the prototype of what he was going to do with Eyes Wide Shut. Um, in particular, you know, taking an Austrian story, a contemporary of Arthur Schnitzer, translating it into an American, contemporary American idiom, changing the names. Um, in, in the original story, the mother's Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there isn't much discussion of the Jewishness, in it, but, you know, that's taken out completely in the, in the screenplay. Um, that the husband of the mother is um, has more of a role. There's lots of telephone conversations, so he's fleshed out certain elements, or at least called the Willingham, and he has, has, has fleshed out these elements. Um, obviously, his desire to make the film was frustrated, but you know, one can certainly see this kind of interest in sex, family relationships, family triads, you know, triangles. In marriage, fidelity, adultery, um, you know, one can see elements of that in in all of his films thereafter, um, particularly in, say, Lolita, the Sh- uh, Barry Lyndon, The Shining, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then culminating in Eyes Wide Shut, right? Um, which is again another family triangle, you know, uh, of course, disrupted by an outsider. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so. Um, yeah, and interestingly, with Lolita, Lolita was less of a translation because if you think it was set in the period, um, pretty much that the film was made. Sure. And um, you know, Nabokov did the original kind of screenplay that then Kubrick and Harris um, and worked on to to cut down um, into a filmable size. So right. Um, but I think yeah, I mean to sort of summarize the Burning Secret screenplay shows us Kubrick's working method, particularly when it comes to taking a, an Austrian Jewish text. And secondly, I think we see elements of it in a way in all, in all of his future films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's uh, very astute. All those observations and pointing out the, uh, the triad. And we certainly have a bit of a triad between the existing I would say, I mean, probably goes beyond those three, but certainly with Lolita and Barry Lyndon and Eyes Wide Shut, you mm. have a triad of, of triads, if I may. <laughs> yeah, very, yeah, very nice, yes. <laughs> so, I mean, I have to ask the question um, regarding uh, the MGM stamp, uh, the script department being... Uh, on this found script, the the script itself bears the stamp of the MGM script department. Can yep. you tell our listeners what that actually means, and do they still hold any rights over the script? Um, uh, well, we're tra- we're still investigating that. Um, do your listeners need to know the history of how this screenplay came about, or if it's or... stuff if it's stuff you can share, please do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, so the story is Kubrick had wrapped the killing, and you know that that film had sort of made his name. Um, or at least got his name about, and um, he was looking to adapt Paz of Glory by Humphrey Cobb. Um, and he went to MGM, and MGM were like, oh, oh boy, not another war story. Um, mm. But, um, you know, we have all these properties that we've bought. Have a look through, and if there's anything that grabs you, go for it. So uh, Harris and Kubrick were just in their office going through these scripts, endless scripts, and the only one that really grabbed at least Stanley's attention was Burning Secret. Um, Harris um, wasn't so enamored by it, but but Kubrick really wanted to develop it. So he 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 brought in Calder Willingham, who is kind of somewhat forgotten now. I think 
really only the aficionados know him. Mm. Uh, you know, the hot young Greenwich Village novelist who sure. uh, wasn't unafraid to, um, wasn't af- afraid, sorry, to, to address, um, you know, risque issues in the 50s. In, in, in the natural child, he, he deals with abortion. Um, you know, and this is in the early 50s. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he's kind of a hot, risque young writer, and, and Kubrick, Kubrick really wanted to use him. Um, well, so they, at, that, at that time, abortion was illegal in the United States. Yeah, that's correct. Um, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, and just, you know, out of marriage sex, this, you know, this novel right. dealt with. And, and um, so, so they developed the screenplay. Um, the problem was it's hard to know the exact reason. I, so they showed it to the production code and the production code said there's not really a problem with this unless this murderous aspect isn't emphasized too much that I mentioned, the strangler, mm-hmm. um, because the other elements are dealt with tastefully. So I'm not 100% convinced it was too risque for the period. Um, I, I get the feeling that, um, you know, and this is gut instinct, and one would have to do more research, that MGM kind of sussed out that Kubrick was his own person mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, probably wasn't going to tow a studio line. And um, you know, meanwhile, he's also working on Paths of Glory with Jim Thompson. Mm-hmm. That provided them with the excuse, you know, you're, you're in breach of exclusive contract now to right. him. But the person who was his big supporter at MGM, Josh Dor Sherry, he got fired. So there was a project that Kubrick was working on. Harris wasn't so enthused by it. I don't think the studio were so enthused by it. But the per- and the person who was supporting the project got fired. So he lost his internal support. Got it. And, um, I think I think they and, and then they use this excuse that well you're you're in breach of contract now because you're working on Burning Secret by day and you're doing Pars of Glory by night. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I think, but I think they got a sense of they're not gonna, you know, he's not <laughs> the kind of person who's gonna do what we say, right? Right. So clearly, um, clearly, yeah. So, um, I mean, but then it, you know, one needs to go into mourning. So, cause the problem is now is that MGM doesn't exist as it, as it used right, to. Right. But part of it does. So. Yeah. The legal part that want, might want to rear its uh, monstrous head over property rights. Exactly. Which is why, um, um, you know, it's, it, it's not so much that we can't talk about. It's what we, what one can do with the actual script. Right. Exactly. Um, and so, there's an issue of does MGM own it still? What's the option on the story? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, because Birkin got an option on it in '88. Mm-hmm. If it's 30 years, it just would have run out. Was that an option? Right. Was that an option on the script or on the original novella? On the on the original novella. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. So there's that issue, but I think I think that can be overcome. But then it's co-written by Willingham and Kubrick. So presumably their estates own it, mm-hmm. but no one's kind of claiming it. Jan, Jan hasn't spoken up on this yet? Um, not to claim it, no. Mm. Would, uh, would MGM have originally commissioned, uh, would, would they have paid the, develop, the development fund for that to be written? For the 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 screenplay, yeah, would MGM have actually kind of paid uh, Kubrick and Willingham for that script for the screenplay? Um, well, no, they, I mean um, Kubrick was on under contract to them anyway. Yeah, if okay. you see what I mean. So yeah. they, they were. I don't think they were. They were paid a salary out of which they produced that. If you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so they own it, uh, MGM. I suppose owns it, but in the absence of MGM existing in the same way as it did then. Well, this was very own. common in the, at that time for, for, you know, actors and directors to be under contract exclusively. Yeah. Yeah. So been trying to suss this one out ever since the story broke and getting better, bigger legal brains than mine on it. Uh, all I know is what I, I shouldn't do. <laughs> yeah, I don't really know what other people can do, and I got a lot of queries um, in the immediate aftermath of some, you know, people throwing about some big names. 
Um, I mean, this this simple fact uh, is really important um, for next Tuesday's auction, as as far as I can see it. I mean, I think it's been put put up up on auction as a ten thousand pound start or ten thousand dollar starting uh, number, but. I mean, if it's just a piece of memorabilia at that price, that's fine. But if it's a potentially someone, a producer can buy that script and take it and own the rights to it, I mean, that could, that's right. got to be worth hundreds of thousands, potentially. Yeah, I think that that was that's um, yeah. I mean, I suppose the question that everyone wants to know is: is, is this any good? And there's only one way to find out: is buy it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Gerald legally uh, owns the thing, so he's fine. Um, it's the IP, the intellectual property, is the issue here. So, right, right. Um, I think with this auction, yeah, people want to see, want to know what it's like. You know, beyond beyond um, the the obvious question of is it any good, I think the the follow up, obviously, you know, for just avid Kubrick fans, is how soon till we can see this, and and who's going to, you know be granted uh, the, the the permission to direct it? Who's going to be the lucky one? Well, it, you know? de- it depends on who buys it and what they do right. with it. Right. Yeah. And, and what kind I of mean, firestorm will ensue when people debate over, oh, I don't want him to direct it or I want her to direct it and so forth. Yeah, I mean, um, there's a, quite a few questions in there. Um, um, I mean, is it any good? I'll deal with that one. You know, how good is any Kubrick screenplay on the page? Mm, right. Good point. You know, I mean, the, the line I always like to say is, imagine the bit where he describes, um, you know, in 2001, apes meet large meteor, uh, meteoric stone, you know? Does, right. Yeah, but does that really tell you what you see in here? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and yeah. didn't even know what you were going to see in here at the point that he wrote that? No. Um, so, so for me, um, you know, how do you judge a screenplay? It's 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 not a novel. It's not a short story. It's it's a blueprint for doing this. It's like looking at the designs of a house and saying, "Well, how good's that house going to be?" Yeah, mm. it's a great point. Yeah, yeah. So for me, I would love to know who was going to cast in it. Um, Shelley Winters and James Mason might have been. Um, you know, maybe that was in his mind. Yeah, they were in his minds. Um, I can see James Mason as the suave seducer. Mm-hmm. Shelley Winters as the um, you know, not unattractive uh, uh, a Jewish mother figure. I mean, that, mm-hmm. it's been really interesting. That that to me is what I would love to know. Um, you know, camera direction and all that we we can't know because you know he probably didn't know. Yeah, and um, you know, all right, Gerald would have scored it, um, so we can probably have a guess at that. So it's really hard to evaluate. You know, how good is any Kubrick script? I mean, I've been through lots of them. Um, you know, they, it, it's hard to tell without seeing what the final film would have been. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, what's going to happen with it? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, it's a tough one. I mean, who's going to bid? Is it going to be someone who just wants to own a piece of original Kubrickiana that no one else has? Right. right. Um, is it going to go to an archive? Um, or, as I suppose Joshua hopes, it will spark a bidding war between uh, studios. Um, with a view to uh, adapting it. But I think they're then going to have to do the hard work. I mean, I suppose they pay people a lot of money to do that, to to find out if they can. Mm-hmm. So at this stage, it's a total gamble, really. I mean, is there a situation... Um, is it in New York, by the way, the uh, auction? Yeah, it's in New York, yeah. Yep. I mean, is there a situation yeah. where you can go and look at this item before bidding on it? You know, that's a good question. I don't know. Um you could contact them and find out you what you can do is you can register with them and you can and then you can bid from uh, wherever you live if you want to <laughs> yeah well yeah well, i'm already registered with bonhams i've been for some years but uh at a ten thousand pound starting price i won't even be uh tuning in <laughs> yeah it's worse than that it's twenty thousand is it yeah. wow and with the weak pound at the moment that's uh <laughs> yeah yeah you know, a few years ago when it was two for one, ah, 10 grand, what's 10 grand? Sure, right, right. But um, I, these people throw money away at all kinds of things uh, So in Hollywood. so Well, I, I guess you, our hope would be that if somebody's going to be throwing money away, it would be somebody who 
you know, is not interested in just holding on to a piece of Kubrickiana, as you say, and, and somebody who, in fact, wants to see it developed. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that because some people might say it the other way around, you know. Uh-huh. Actually, I know. I think of that. You know, actually, we should just have this screenplay and study it for what it is and, you know. Yeah, you know, I think it'll have all, all kinds of bidders. It'll have potential producers, it'll have collectors, it'll have acad- right. academics who want yep. to study it. I think it'll have the whole range. It's got a really good chance of having a good audience. As yeah. Because mm. I think that isn't surely there's a school of thought that, um, you know, somehow it would be sullying this if we did make it because it's not yep. Kubrick making it. Exactly, yeah. You know, and it's not like with AI where he said, you know, as I understand it, that was always going to be a kind of Spielberg project and, mm-hmm. and Kubrick did all the groundwork, but he said, Stephen, you're going to finish this. Right. Um, it's not the case with this. So, um, you know, and then again, I mean, this is where I'd like to come in. If someone did want to adapt it, they'd have to be like, well, the the, the person who's going to make it now is going to do so based on the knowledge of all Kubrick's films. Yeah. Yeah. But you'd have to make it if you're going to be faithful to it without any knowledge of the films after the killing. That's a good point. So, so, you know, that's where I would want to come in and say, look, you've got to like, forget what you know. And you've got to remember he's learning his craft and really he only became the director we know and love. Essentially to kind of, yeah, essentially to kind of place it within the timeline where Mm. it would have sat had he made the film. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and you've got to make a guess between um, this and using Pars of Glory, how would this have looked? Mm-hmm. Right, what, right, he's already doing the tracking shots, so we can put that in. You know, mm-hmm. he's already doing this, we can put that in. You know, the, the doubles or the Max Ophel's references and the, you know, the checkerboards and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, many people fail to appreciate, and I, I sort of make the points in my work, but I'm quite forceful about this, the Kubrick that we know and love was forged on the set of Spartacus. What anyone thinks of Spartacus, what he learned there made him the director that we know and love. Um, and and, and um, it, it's not a blip, Spartacus. You know, there's books that leave it out and they're wrong. Um, so we have to think of his career up to, you know, up to, but not including Pars of Glory. And I think that's going to be hard for a director to forget. Indeed. They're going to be, oh, let's put in a little reference to Hal here, or let's be clever, you know? Right, right, right. That's the concern. That's a justifiable concern. But then again, you know, apart from us, us, us who are like, let's keep it in amber, everyone else yeah. will be like, no, I want to see a film based on his whole work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a tricky one, isn't it? Is, it? It's, it is, it is. I think the best thing would be to do is to just be like, well, it, we're not going to honor him in the kind of direct way. Let's make a film that honors him in a, you know, indirect way. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep. Not try and mimic Kubrick, not try and copy it, but, but. Well, I think for, for, for most people, I mean, even uh, uh, people who are generally aware of Stanley Kubrick, who, who may not be cinephiles, but who like going to the movies and whatnot, just to see in the new millennium, you know, go to a theater, see a film, and then it has the director's name. And then, you know, the next title card is, you know, screenplay by Stanley Kubrick and Calder Willingham. You know, or just, you know, based on a screenplay by Stanley Kubrick and so forth. That would be uh, a, a draw. Yeah. A, a, a potential box office draw. You know what they really want to see? What? Advised by Nathan Abrams. <laughs> <laughs> I want that. You want what? At least tell them that they might believe it. Huh? I want that on my CV. Forget about all those other people. You say Jason Furlong was advised by Nathan Abrams. Oh well, Mr. Furlong. In that case, what is your starting salary? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, this is interesting. I mean, this is a whole new ball game for me. I mean, you know, I'm just a lowly professor at a university where no, <laughs> in North Wales, and um, um, as someone put it to me, you're just some schmuck in a North Wales university. Yeah, 
<laughs> and, um, about you that now. was a family friend who said that to me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they're entitled if they're your friend. Yeah, um, and and um, yeah, it's fascinating. I, I was sort of a bit naive. I didn't expect to get this kind of level of Hollywood interest and um, um, media interest that I anticipated. You know, and it's 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 interesting to see how Kubrick still, you know, he still grips, right? Oh, oh, no doubt. No doubt. I mean, I, I've I've reflected personally on the idea that, you know, there are some people who become bigger in death than they were in life. But of course, Kubrick was larger in life in his lifetime. It's just that, you know, he lived during the age of traditional press yes. and before social media and stuff. But people were, you know, always, you know, talking about him and, and wanting to know uh, all kinds of details about him. And so, of course, the press made up, you know, fantastic and often horribly inaccurate stories describing him as a curmudgeon and hermetic and so forth. Um, but uh, it was because, you know, I, I read somewhere that, you know, he, he didn't want to go on a chat show because he felt he would just look silly. Mm. Uh, and and I, I always understood that. It made sense to me knowing what I continued to learn about him as I kept reading and as I got older. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he is nonetheless, like now with social media, he is additionally, I wouldn't say larger in death than he was in life, but he has kind of grown into this, you know, mythic figure that uh, I think a lot of the younger people who have never known the world without social media and 24-hour television or the internet, they've never known the world before that. They, in particular, seem to be very intrigued by the idea of this person living the life the way he, his life the way he did, um, choosing his creative projects the way he did, um, avoiding uh, all of the pitfalls that he was wise enough to avoid along the way. And it, it makes for a very fascinating story that seems to you know, propel him and his mythos, but that is not to overlook, you know, the bottom line that he was just, um, you know, a very self-motivated guy and uh, one who knew what he wanted. And, and people are always interested in that exceptional human being who is of singular vision. I think we always have been throughout history and it's no wonder why just because we have social media now that people are captivated by him mm. um, so what 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 directors if i can ask nathan just if you have any names that come to mind i know you uh, recently brought up uh uh darren aronofsky in one of your yeah. recent lectures are there any directors that you admire and or would not mind seeing uh become the director of this film should it be made <laughs> Who do I admire right now? I'd have the Cohen brothers. Hell yes. And and interestingly, um oh, I just yeah. read a new I just read a new book about them. Um uh this book really ties the films together. Yeah, it just came out in the States. I have to grab it. I just saw it last yeah. week. And you know who published it? Abrams. Ah, of course. <laughs> it's a lovely book, but Kubrick's one of the few directors that they they I mean obviously they you know reference loads of films and directors but the ones that they're explicit about with their actors um and uh in a sense their kind of universe that they create is not unlike his um not 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 I'm not saying that they copy his universe that the fact that they like him create created one and uh, I would love to do a book um, um, like, like name Adam Naiman did about the Coen Brothers about Kubrick, uh, which I tried to do a little bit in this one, um, in Stanley Kubrick, New York Jewish Intellectual, but but you know something more popular and and looking at all these associations, and and they would be a really interesting choice because, you know they they do those movies where they go back in time, right? Those mm -hmm. period movies, and they've got a world of reference at their fingertips. And they listen to no one. I was just reading about the new one that's coming out on Netflix. How Netflix commissions one thing, and they just turn around and give them something else. And yeah. tough luck, you know. That's not yeah. unlike him. And um, 
I think, I think that, you know, I hadn't thought of them originally. Um, no, but I could see it. I, I mean, we haven't had the chance to talk about this, uh, you and I beyond peripherally, but you know, mm. you know, I'm a, I'm a huge, I've seen every Cohen fan, uh, Cohen film multiple times, at right. least many, many times. I, I remember sitting in the theater uh, watching Fargo, I'm sorry, not Fargo, Raising Arizona mm. um, with my mom and my sister. And I, I just remember that it was a very rainy night. And so therefore the movie theater was packed. You know, people were, were getting out on a Friday night and it was opening weekend and every joke killed. Every joke landed. Nobody had heard of the Coens before that. I mean, Blood Simple had been out, but yeah. no one really knew it. And Raising Arizona instantly made them household names. Yeah, I've been a fan ever since we and you you were bringing up the big Lebowski and do it where they go back in time. I used to think how interesting it was. They put big Lebowski in 1990 and they made the film eight years later. And, and you know, in the in the opening narration, it, and yeah, Sam Elliott says this this story I'm about to unfold took place right about the time of our conflict with Saddam and the Iraqis. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because in '98, that was like, it, you know, how time moves, and it doesn't feel like it was that long ago. Yeah, um, and they're able to manipulate that. I could totally see them doing something with that, and I hadn't thought of that. But as soon as you said it, man, I was like, right, perfect. Yeah, I, I'm thinking of like Hudsucker Proxy, Barton yes. Fink, and Miller's Crossing. Yeah. yeah, you know, especially especially Barton Fink. You know, oh God, do I love that? Yeah. Yeah, but you know how they're able to recreate a period. But then again, A Serious Man goes back to the 60s, which is um, probably my other favorite. Um, and then, and then um, The Man Who Wasn't There. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or oh, oh, Brother Were Out There. I mean, they, they, they can do that kind of... And the good thing about Coen Brothers is you know if they, it wouldn't be straight, right? So you wouldn't be disappointed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because, you know, I, I'd have this fear that like... Um, some other directors would be too kind of play it straight, too on the nose, too, um, mm-hmm. you know, and you just go, oh, yeah. You know, oh, I'm going to try and be like Stanley. And it's like, oh, it's too earnest, you know? Yeah. Uh, whereas, uh, I mean, Aronofsky, I like. I think he's, because, you know, some of his films, you're like, like, if you've seen The Fountain, you know. I've not seen that one yet, no. Well, again, that would be like, you watch that, like one might have watched 2001 in the, back in the day, you'd be like, oof, what's that about? Um, again, um, um, so he would be interesting. And again, he's considered one of the few kind of contemporary Jewish directors who's kind of work in a Kubrick vein. Well, uh, yeah, I suppose if uh, Aronofsky did it, he'd be looking at it from a, a modern perspective, uh, rather than if the Coens did it, they would probably look at it as a, a pre-path of glory thing, maybe. Mm. As a, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, that's the decision you're going to make. I agree with you. Is like, would you do it as a 56 piece, mm. or would you do it as a um, as um, your interpretation and set it now? Well, given um, the subject matter that it you know touches on, it, it, it took to. To set that in the modern day with the Me Too movement era and so forth that we're, uh, you know, contending with uh, culturally, all of us, mm-hmm. I think it, that, I fear, would be considered too on the nose, as you say, by no, no matter, you know, how deft the brushstroke of even the best director out there today would be, if they set that story in the modern age it would probably ruffle a lot of feathers, I fear. I mean, I, I think, you know, get avoid, getting around it might be to um, do a kind of film within a film, mm. um, a kind of, like Titanic isn't really about the boat, right? It's about the... Right, the, right. The, yeah. um, and then you can stick the boat in the middle, right? So you could right. do that kind of structure where um, it's a film, you know, it needs to be a film about a, a Jewish professor in north wales you know (laughs) (laughs) and then in the middle you you try and make it or something you know um, like don quixote or or or, you know there could be interesting ways to treat this material rather than just saying we're going to try and film the script it could be it's going to be about the attempt to try and make this you know that's a little bit like the life of death of peter sellers kind of thing maybe yeah yeah 
But they're clearly uh, the way to go. They're clearly the way to go. <laughs> I, I can't argue that. I mean, we all have other directors we admire. Um, but yeah, if there's one we all would agree on, like who should take over the burning secret, man, you're right. You're totally right to say, in my opinion, you're right to say that they would kind of make it their own rather than, oh, let's let's make a Stanley Kubrick film in his stead. Um, I, I, I was recently rewatching Burn, uh, Burn After Reading, and I, I could be wrong, but I think in the opening, in the very opening moments uh, from that like Google Earth Zoom they do, that there's a sound effect taken from either the Discovery or the pod. All right. There's the other famous uh, Cohen, well, I don't know if it's famous, but the Cohen Kubrick uh, kind of reference in uh, Raising Arizona on the toilet doors. Yeah. That's, yep. that's yep. from Do- 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 Dr. Yep. Strange, love, I believe. O-P-E, yeah. P-O-E, yep, of yeah. course. And I think the man who wasn't there references Killer's Kiss. Right. Oh, well, the uh, um, have you ever seen uh, uh, David Fincher's Panic Room with Jodie Foster? Yeah. Yep. The final scene, Forrest Whitaker is trying to escape with all the uh, the bonds and the police helicopter puts the spotlight over him and he's just about to leap over the, the fence in the backyard and mm. the bonds go spinning around and they break loose of the, the briefcase and they fly around in a whirlpool oh. and it's, it's straight out of the killing. Oh, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Fincher could be interesting. Yeah. I, li- I like Fincher very much. I always have. I've been, de- I've, I've been defending Alien 3 to, to naysayers for... <laughs> Since the movie's been out, I think it's a great film. I love it, and I know a lot of people don't. Mm. But we'll leave we'll leave it at that. Yep. And Leon recently mentioned that he thought uh, Paul Thomas Anderson would be a good fit. Yes, he did. Uh, yeah, I heard that. Didn't he? Didn't he get invited to visit the set of Eyes Wide Shut? Yeah, there's that story that um, he was like, "Where's all your crew?" And and Stan yeah. was like. You're looking how at him. How many crew do you need? Yeah. That's a great story. So I'm just going to ask one last question. Is, uh, are you going to be bidding for the script yourself? <laughs> <laughs> uh, oof, well, I think if I did, I'd probably fall at the first uh, nod. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, gamble my kid's future on a script that might never be made, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, no, but I watch with interest, so um, I'm, I, it's intriguing to know where this will go. Yeah. What if I just like I just kept outbidding everyone, but I had no way of coming up with the money? That would make a good story. <laughs> it sure would. I just see what will happen. The bid will be like that sequence in Barry Lyndon, you know, all quiet, and Jason yeah, yeah. will come in in his wooden clogs, you know. Would <laughs> <laughs> be like. <laughs> I would do it. I would do it. I know you would. You know I would. Well, well, let's set it up. Let's set that one up. Listen, I've said it for many years. It doesn't matter if people are laughing with you or if they're laughing at you. It's enough that they're laughing. Yes, that's true. <laughs> I think that's a beautiful place to end. Yes. Okay, cool. Hey, thanks everyone for listening in to this edition of Kubrick's Universe with special guests Leon Vitali, Gerald Freed, and Nathan Abrams for sharing their own personal stories about this long-lost screenplay by Stanley Kubrick and Calder Willingham. By the by, all three of the aforementioned gents are going to be featured on their own upcoming episodes of Kubrick's Universe super soon and toot sweet. Thanks to our producer, editor, and researcher, Stephen Rigg, as well as James Marinaccio and Mark Lentz at Kubrick's Universe for their invaluable help in the research department, as well as helping to keep the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society on Facebook running smoothly. Hey, please, everyone, if you have time, give our show a rating and a review wherever you listen to your preferred podcasts. We thank you. Sincerely, thank you. Thank you.
Thank you. We're going to leave you now with the audio version of the film trailer from Andrew Birkin's 1988 film adaptation of Stefan Zweig's Burning Secret. For now, your host, young, old, Meister Furlong, signing off. See you next time, everyone, and come back soon. In a time of elegance and innocence. Take care of your mother for me. Christian Alexander Maria von Hauenstein. Your name is? Edmund. Of open friendship and buried passion. He's got the most amazing little car you've ever seen. We don't even know him. A stranger with a provocative past. You wouldn't believe all the stories he told me about when he was in the war. I probably wouldn't. An unknown purpose. Alexander! Look, it's the Baron! Jump! He said he likes me. He quite likes you, too. Would become the center of a seduction. Seems the deepest love affairs are the ones left unfulfilled. He's my friend. I'm in a post. I don't know what it is that he wants. He wants something from you. Trick us both until he gets you. Why did you let him kiss you? Faye Dunaway, Klaus Maria Brandauer, and introducing David Everts. Burning Secret. It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick Podcast.